Hello and welcome to Crank It Commentaries. As always, my name is Jake Domastro and I'm joined by my very good friend and co-host Keaton Byer. Hello, Keaton. Hello. How's it going? Not too bad. Not too bad. So uh, we're doing episode 51, eh? 51. Wow. That's a lot of episodes. Yeah, I mean... Can't believe we made it that far. <laughs> that's pretty, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a, it's a good, hefty number. That's like, yeah. if if I had, you know, if I had a dollar for every episode that we'd done. Have I'd, $50? Yeah, well, now I'd have 51, and I'd be that's feeling pretty good, pretty good about myself. Well, well, we haven't done 51 episodes yet. The, yeah, you're right. We're, only... we're doing our 51st right now. It's true, but thank you to everyone who's listened to any yeah, of them. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much. We uh, appreciate we got, all, hopefully, all we, of you. hopefully, we have many more for you. But yeah, yeah we've we'll got see. at least 50 more for you. Well, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> I won't promise you that, but I hope to deliver it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so, Keaton, what movie are we doing today? Planet of the Apes. Yeah, I mean, what a what a fucking classic. I mean, or is it the Planet of the Apes? I think it's just Planet of the Apes. Yeah, it's it's just Planet of the Apes. Uh, but yeah, so, so this is our fifty first episode, which means we've done fifty episodes, you know. Yeah. And you know, to 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 be doing such a classic film, and you know, uh, having celebrated like a little bit of a milestone here, I thought we have a special guest here on the podcast. Uh, so. Uh, why don't we welcome, you know, back from the grave himself, uh, Charlton Heston. Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! He's not in a good mood, but, you know, he's, he's here. He's clearly pretty grumpy. It's a manhouse! A manhouse! He's not happy to be on the podcast. <laughs> no, I don't think so. So, without further ado, do you want to give us uh, a tight summary of this film? Okay, a tight summary. I think that that's actually fairly straightforward. Yeah, I think so. Okay, so basically, um, you know, if you haven't seen Planet of the Apes, uh, I don't think I'll be spoiled. Like, if you don't know how the movie ends, I think, like, you It's know, been a while since it It's came been a while, so... you should know, so... Yeah, if you don't know, uh, I'm just go gonna on, roll pause with this it. now and go watch it. Um, actually, uh, I think, um, you know... I think why don't we get uh our guest Chuck Heston to uh to explain the ending for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You maniacs! You blew it up! Oh, damn you! God damn you all to hell! <laughs> uh anyways, <laughs> so now that's that's some acting right there. Yeah. Absolutely, like, amazing performance here by Charles Heston, who, you know, never phones it in. No, he certainly doesn't phone it in. Um, anyway, uh, so basically, uh, there are a bunch of astronauts uh, who are getting launched into space on a journey. Four astronauts. Yes, there are four astronauts. Uh, they're going on a journey into space uh, really far away, and, you know... If you know anything about, you know, relativity, you know... Yeah, they're like, going at uh, light speed. The, the approaching light speed. Um, yeah, the, well, you can't go at light speed. Uh, so anyway, uh, basically, <laughs> uh, 
I'm, I'm, well, we don't have. Uh, yeah, we'll power. We'll power. We'll, we don't have Felix on the show, so we'll yeah, we don't have Felix to one. explain this. So we'll power through this one. But anyway, um, since as you approach the speed of light, you know, uh, your you know perception of time is like slowed. I think um, that's, or at least yeah. that's the way it works in this movie. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's how they portray it in this film. Whether or not it works like that is irrelevant. Yeah, either that or it has nothing to do with that, and they're just in stasis, which is also, I think, what's happening. I think that there's it's a combination of the two. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so they uh, they finally come out of like their uh, you know journey, and they're headed towards a planet. And uh, so they wake up as this uh, their ship is kind of going into a crash landing. Yeah, like there's an emergency beeping and, and shit. Yeah. It's, not a, it's an emergency scenario they wake up into. Exactly. They find out that one of their uh, crew members, uh, and the only woman on the crew, has died uh, in her sleep, basically. Yeah, there was some sort of leak. <laughs> yeah, due to some sort of... I don't know, oxygen leak, I don't know what, but... Uh, so three of them survive, uh, and they they don't have really much time to, like, uh, you know, figure out what's going on, and uh, they just grab what they can, get, they can and they get out uh, of their ship, ship, which happens yeah. to be sinking in the water, um, and because the ship has landed in some lake in Utah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah <laughs> but, exactly. Not before but, uh, 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 Taylor observes the ship's yes. clock. He realizes that he's gone several thousand years into the future yeah. from his original points in time um and so they uh come out uh and they find that they're in sort of like this wasteland looking type area which is utah and and then so then they uh they're like desperately searching for food yeah they've only Uh, got what three days they've only got three days worth of rations Um, i feel like they could stretch that they could but you know they're still looking for food anyway so they find some greenery uh as they get out of this wasteland then eventually they see some signs of sort of intelligent life with yeah you're also but you're forgetting uh you're forgetting taylor just being such a fucking oh yeah asshole. taylor just being a fucking jerk yeah like such an asshole that's just his character or whatever oh yeah uh well <laughs> to both of them but mostly to landon <laughs> yeah. yeah well landon's actually engaging with him dodge or whatever is not uh yeah not paying him any mind. Even like when they're arguing, you see like Dodge is like fifty yeah. meters ahead of them and they're like I know, yeah. Um, they're arguing. Yeah, they find evidence of intelligent life. Uh and so they keep going in that direction. And so then they end up uh they find some this waterfall and all this nice water and so they get, they decide to go skinny dipping. Yep. And as they're skinny dipping, their clothes are stolen by uh some creatures. Who they uh, follow. Some filthy arms. These filthy creatures. And they find out that they are, in fact, uh, human beings. Or they look very much like human beings. Very Uh, basic human beings. But they they don't appear to speak or anything. No, they they don't. They seem, they seem, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Primitive. Primitive, that's the word I was looking for. So uh, they sort of hang out for a little while with these you know, man-like creatures who are, you know, eating some fruit and shit. 
Uh, yeah, and they immediately and, get all like fucking high horse, and like uh, Taylor's like, "Well, you know, oh, like, yeah. if this is the best weeks, they we'll got, be running this place, yeah, yeah, if this is the best they got, I'm like, Jesus Christ, dude, like you're you suck so much." <laughs> yeah, uh, <laughs> but um, anyway, so then they hear gunshots, <sighs> and uh, you know, this doesn't seem like a society that would you know have guns. They don't even seem like a society at all. Exactly. Uh and so then they uh they find themselves being chased by some uh brutish looking gorillas on horseback. Yeah, you know, they didn't read as gorillas to me the like yeah, at all. <laughs> like the gorillas cuz the gorillas are mostly shown from a distance. So they just kind of read as chimps to me, like bigger chimps. Right. I I think they're supposed to be gorillas, but you know, they're definitely supposed to be gorillas. Yeah. Um. So, I don't know. I just think that the 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 image of like the gorillas on horseback with the guns is like super great. Yeah, it's awesome. Super sick. Uh, like introduction to that. That. Yeah. Idea. Super sick introduction. Um. And so then they uh, the gorillas hunt down the uh the humans, and uh, brutally kill, too, like brutally like, kill a bunch of them. Uh, presumably because the humans are eating their crops. Yeah, because the humans are, like, in the corn, eating the corn, so they're they're culling the humans, basically. Exactly, because the humans are a pest to them. Yep. They kill Dodge. Dodge gets killed. Dodge gets killed. Oh, yes. Dodge gets killed. We see him Uh, shot. And he gets separated from uh, the other guy. Landon or whatever. Landis. I don't know. Landon, I think. Landon, yes. Um, Yeah. And he ends up getting shot in the throat. Uh, lo- le- le- uh, what's his name? Taylor. Yeah, Taylor ends up getting Lawrence, shot in the throat. Lawrence, I almost called him. Lawrence? Oh. Uh, so he, yeah, Taylor gets shot in the throat, um, and then, uh, loses consciousness, I guess, and the... Some great stunt work in that scene. I don't know how planned much of it was. Oh, all the, all of them falling into, like, the water, or what? Yeah, people like... doing, like, flips off that yeah. cliff into the water and shit. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if there were a couple dummies in that shot. Yeah, maybe. But, um, so when he comes to, he, uh, finds himself, uh, captured by the apes in some kind of a, uh, I don't know, like, zoo a, scientific. not quite a zoo, but not like quite a, a zoo, uh, but... an animal pen kind of thing. Yeah, but like, not and... like a particularly clean one. No, yeah. So, yeah, he finds himself being, like, studied by some scientists, uh, some ape scientists. Yeah. Um, who have Chimp tended to his his wound. Um, yeah. And, uh, but this has left him unable to speak, unfortunately. Just like all the other, uh, humans. What an awful coincidence. Yeah, he finds out that on this world, you know, which, you know, you've probably already guessed by now, but the humans are a primitive uh, animal. And yeah. uh, the apes, the apes are the intelligent race. Role reversal. Exactly. Uh, and the the apes are experimenting on the humans. Oh my God. Oh my God. This is like, it's, uh, this, the roles are so reversed that it's like causing me to think about our... You know, the roles are so reversed that it's almost like... A man <laughs> Exactly like that. Those were the words I was searching for. <laughs> nailed it. Whoever um, wrote yeah. this one nailed it. 
So, uh, a bunch of things happens. He meets some scientists, uh, who are, like, you know, uh, it's so cool that, like, you know, you seem so much more intelligent than all these apes, but, you know, you're, you're not really smart, because you're just a man, and, you know, humans are dumb. Yeah. You can't be as smart as an ape, because you're not, our religion forbids it. Yes, exactly. Uh, the apes are uh, quite, uh, you know, they're a religious. theocracy. Yeah, they're yeah, exactly. They have this uh, religion um, given to down to them by the lawgivers. Yeah, yeah. I feel like uh, there's there's a lot of lore there. Yeah, well, that didn't you know, make it into the film. Well, I mean, it eventually did, but well, <laughs> yeah, but that doesn't. That's, I don't know. That's, that's a not, whole other story. We'll, we'll not talk about the series today i think but yeah we'll that'll be a it. later we'll get into it a little bit i'm sure but yeah. um he eventually demonstrates that he's smart by stealing a pen and paper and writing how the apes write in english i don't know well that's that's yeah the whole or language thing is is yeah you just gotta suspend your disbelief on that one exactly um, um but yeah not before dr zaius because before he can he writes oh yeah it. So, so it it, it uh, becomes very clear that Doctor Zayas is uh, who is the head of the Ministry of Science and religion, age. and religion. <laughs> he seems to very much be opposed to any kind of you know ideas of humans being you know intelligent or that uh, predating that of ape society. <laughs> it's heresy to even to even think that. Yeah. So eventually, uh, Taylor tries to escape. Because they're going to castrate him. Oh, yeah, because they're going to, you know, castrate him. <laughs> I'm not sure why. They just, they're just going to do that. I don't that. know, because they just want to do that. Well, I think it's that they don't want to get his, like, smart genes, like, into yeah, the Yeah, or maybe they want pool. him to be less aggressive. Well, that too. But, like, <laughs> he escapes because they're going to castrate him. Uh, well, then they eventually capture him. Uh, because there's this whole chase sequence, and uh, you know he he doesn't make really it long chase sequence. I thought it was pretty good, but that's like, one of the best scenes in the film is the chase sequence. Well, the best scene is right at the end of the chase sequence. Yeah, when they uh when they actually like round him up, and then he realizes like you realize that his his speech has recovered. He's able to speak again. Take your stinking paws off me, you damn dirty ape! And that's what he said. <laughs> and that's what he says, yeah. And it's one of the most memorable lines in film. Definitely. Um, I actually was playing uh, Super Smash Bros. the other day, and I got the opportunity to say that line. <laughs> uh, I, Felix was playing uh, Diddy Kong, and he grabbed take, me, take and I said that. Take your hands off me, you <laughs> damn dirty ape! Exactly. Perfect. Although I'm pretty sure Diddy Kong is not technically an ape, but no, he's got a long tail, so therefore exactly, he's, a monkey. he's probably a monkey. Yeah, but uh, you know, Donkey Kong's an ape. Yeah, he is. Um, after the chase scene is what I think is sort of the lull in the movie is where they have like the whole oh, like God, trial and shit like that. Yeah. Uh, anyway, all that happens. I'm gonna kind of skip over that. <laughs> But he's just trying to, basically, you get the, it drives home the whole point that, you know, like, the apes are like, you know, you're wrong. You they're know, very set in their ways. They they're don't... very set in their ways, and he's just trying to tell them the truth, that, you know, man is smart. Oh, yeah, and all the chimp scientists who were, like, his friends were, like, you know, 
kind of saying like oh you know he might be evidence of this theory that we're trying to prove that like this you know convenient theory that we have yeah maybe you know there is a society that predates the apes heresy heresy and then they all cover their ears which i thought was hilarious yeah yeah they all cover their ears <laughs> basically uh i think you know they decide that you know I don't even remember what happens. I watched this yesterday. And I don't <laughs> what happens in this whole trial. This whole trial? Yeah, well, they it ends with them being, like, the ape, the chimps being sentenced to heresy, and then they're like, uh, like... No, they don't. Isn't that it? Oh, wait, no, maybe they do, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they sentence them to heresy, because yeah. then they're out on, out on bail later on. And then basically it just ends with, like, that whole court scene ends with, like, him being taken to Dr. Zayas's like, personal chamber. Not his personal chamber, but, like, his Right, office. yeah, and he speaks to Dr. Zayas and, you know... Uh, Do- Dr. Zayas basically levels with him, being like, yeah, I Dr. don't Zayas, care about the truth. Yeah, yeah, he's very sketchy. You know, we find out in, in a minute, like, his reasons for that, um, which yeah. I don't blame, to be honest. Um... <laughs> you know, so anyway, eventually uh, they're like, okay, well, we got, like, the chimps are like, you know, we got a free tailor, uh, so they mount a rescue, yeah, and they, yeah. they free tailor and Nova, Nova, who is the, uh, his mate. Yeah, the um, really weird thing that they just, I don't know, that whole plot line is so weird and creepy. Yeah, yeah, um, and so then they, um, uh yeah, so they escape. They decide to go visit this cave, which uh, yeah, supposedly the most has evidence. Place that they would go. Yeah, well, you know, uh, they supposedly there's evidence of a pre-ape society. So they go there so that they can hopefully prove their innocence by proving, you know, it's not heresy if it's true, right? Exactly. They can't charge us with heresy if my theory is true. Exactly. So they go down there. Uh, also with uh the the kid Lucius. Yeah, yeah. Um, which has the the greatest line from Charlton Heston to uh. Oh, what, don't trust anybody over thirty or what is no, that? Well, that's a good one. It spawns from that that whole conversation is where, uh, after he shaves, <laughs> and he's like back on my society. Only, oh yeah. Only kids your age wear beards. <laughs> I don't know what the fuck that means, because, like, I don't think that that's true about people in the 60s. No, it's, it is true. It's the, in, in that society, only men are clean-shaven. Right. I guess American men, yeah. American men, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so they go down to the cave. Uh, Dr. Zayas basically figures that's where they were going, obviously. Yeah. And yeah. he meets up with them, and he's like, ah, you know, you guys, you're trying to run away. Uh... <laughs> that's exactly what he says eventually uh, uh, Taylor gets a drop on him he's like I'm gonna fucking shoot this asshole if you guys don't let me like you know do, don't hear me be, out yeah don't hear me out and then so he's like okay fine we'll hear you out we'll go into the cave and then so the Taylor is like so then uh, sorry Cornelius is showing off his evidence about like you know this is whatever basically you know, what are all these things? stratigraphic evidence yeah, exactly. Uh, which you know doesn't seem to be very compelling to uh, Doctor Zayas. <laughs> no, no, not at all. He's hilariously uncompelling. Uh, meanwhile, Taylor is like, "Ah, oh, look at this evidence that I found. Uh, you know, this man had glasses. 
and, uh, and, a, and, a and, a, and a pacemaker, you know? Cornelius' argument was essentially, you know, look at the the things at the older levels of, you know, stratification are like, you know, that's the more advanced culture. It's a paradox. Why is this? Something must be going on. And yeah, then, you know, Dr. Zayas kind of tries to explain it away. But then Taylor, uh, eventually they find the doll. Yeah. The doll, which inexplicably is in great condition. Perfect after condition, still has batteries. Thousands of years. Oh, it might not be batteries. It might not it be might batteries. Be, it, it might be, be a, like yeah, some yeah. other Clock kind of thing. Right? Yeah. Like draw, like a string. Like what do yeah. you think? What are those things? Yeah, so they find the doll, and it's a human doll, and it talks, and that's the proof that, you know, it was made by an advanced human society because... Why would apes make a human doll that talks? Like, I don't know. Not, like, I don't know. Do we have a million fucking toys of apes that talk? Come on. We actually do, but, like, you know. That's what I'm saying. It's the whole In our society, we have tons of ape dolls that talk. I don't know. Um, anyway, um, they're basically, like, convinced, I think, by this doll. The evidence uh, is undeniable. The evidence is pretty much undeniable. So then, you know, they get out of the cave, and then, you know... They think they've won. Oh, well, they're they're drawn out of the cave because they hear gunshots. Oh, yeah, they're drawn out of the cave because they hear gunshots, because Lucius no, is getting in a fight. Yeah, there's no honor amongst apes, Yeah, but anyway, th- this whole thing gets, you know, resolved, because they're like, basically, I'm going to kill Zeus again. <laughs> yeah, the exact same mechanism. Twice in a row. Uh, so they're like, okay, uh, Taylor's like, I'm gonna go fuck off uh, and ride into the Forbidden Zone and hopefully, you know, find somewhere else to hang somewhere out. Somewhere else to live. <laughs> and then Dr. Zayas is like, alright, well, fucking, you know. What I know of man was written long ago, set down by the greatest ape of all, our lawgiver. Cornelius, come here. Reach into my pocket. Read to him the 29th scroll, 6th verse. Beware the beast man, for he is the devil's pawn. Alone among God's primates, he kills for sport, or lust, or greed. Yea, he will murder his brother to possess his brother's land. Let him not breed in great numbers, for he will make a desert of his home and yours. Shun him. Drive him back into his jungle lair, for he is the harbinger of death. So yeah, we find out that, you know, Dr. Zayas has some, like, potentially, you know, legitimate reasons for for (laughs) having his perspective. Yeah, because the fucking scripture literally says to not let them be near you. Intelligent yeah, men will kill you. Exactly. Um, which, I mean, you know, I guess that's the whole point, is that you know as th- that they blew it up, as we're about to find out, because, you know... Anyway, uh, Taylor's <laughs> like, I'm gonna go fuck off and go that way, and then um, Dr. Zayas is like, you know, don't look too hard, you know, you might not like what you find. And then uh, he's like, alright, whatever, peace. Uh, and then Dr. Zayas is like, yo, jokes, I'm going to charge you guys all for heresy anyway. Um, and then they ride off to be charged with heresy. Exactly. And Taylor rides off in the other direction. And, you know, he eventually finds what he was looking for, which is the evidence 
that tells him that, you know, the evidence being the Statue of Liberty. The Statue the of Liberty buried halfway up to the nips. Yeah. So uh, you find out that, you know, this was our planet all along and that, you know. What is his sentiment exactly at this point? You maniacs! You blew it up! Oh, damn you! God damn you all to hell! So yeah, he finds out that he is not in fact in Utah, but in New York. In New York, yeah. <laughs> he thought he was landing in... It's exactly like Columbus. He thought he was in Utah, but actually he was in right. New York. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So basically the humans destroyed themselves uh, with... You know, take your nuclear pick, you know. weapons. Well, you know, they don't make it uh, explicit that it was nuclear weapons. Yeah, I but guess you know, not. take your pick: nuclear weapons, like you know, climate change, like you know, what whatever. Have you. Plagues. Something that would. I wonder: is two thousand years enough to bury the Statue of Liberty in sand? Probably. Well, it depends on what kind of weather patterns we're having. Yeah, I mean, if there's like. Well, one... actually, no. Obviously, it is. Like, think about the Sphinx. Yeah, I suppose that's true. Anyway, so yeah, that's the summary pretty much. Uh, you find out that, that, yeah. So should we talk about some basic facts? Yeah. Uh, so this is. I think the, so, yeah. Did you were you familiar with the director before before you watched it? Director Franklin J. Schaffner. Um. Let me let me just. He's only done one at... other film that I've seen, and that is 1970s Patton. Okay. Um. Everything else, it seems like he did this movie and then did Patton and then kind of one more successful movie and then everything else else after that was not very successful. Are you talking about Papillon? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it seems like he's done some stuff, but like, you know, he's not like a, probably this is his most well-known movie. Well, it might be Patton actually, but who knows? (laughs) Yeah, probably this movie, but. Yeah, probably this one. But uh, yeah, but that's not really because of him. What this film? Yeah, no, Although but I mean, his work on this su- film was like pretty, like top notch. Yeah, it was good work, and he did like his contribution a... to this to this film is like. But yeah, definitely, I don't think that the. I wouldn't say that this is like any auteur sort of uh, film for him. No, <laughs> um, so the screenplay is by Michael Wilson and the legendary Rod Serling. Yes. Um, who uh, the Rod Serling connection, which is, like, very obvious in <laughs> this movie. Oh, yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, this this yeah. whole movie is very... It's got his brand all over it now. That, yeah, and, and we'll talk a little bit later about what his brand is. But we'll like, talk yeah. a lot more about that later. Um, yeah. So I, did, I didn't know this originally, but it's based off of a book. Yeah, so uh, La Planète du Songe uh, by Pierre Boulle, right? C'est bon. <laughs> a, f- a French book I believe it was translated in um, uh, once or twice but it yeah, was released um, in 1963 the original book Le Planète de Singe or is it Singe I don't know actually like you know my French is not that good <laughs> yeah no mine either mine either <laughs> um, I mean, we'll get through. We'll get through everything else. The other thing I wanted to mention though is the music by Jerry Goldsmith, who we've mentioned. Oh before. yeah, you know, we've probably mentioned it before. You know, I think maybe we might have mentioned it before. I don't know. <laughs> definitely, yeah, yeah, definitely. I don't know. Maybe even a couple. Times. I don't know if we ever mentioned Jerry Goldsmith before. 
<laughs> but yeah, we'll talk about him a little later on, maybe in another ep- uh, the next episode. But yeah, uh, but yeah, he did the mummy. If you're not familiar, so you can go listen to that episode too. And some other things, but you know. oh yeah, no, no, just the mummy. That's the that's what he's known for. Definitely, Jerry Goldsmith's like you know apex of his career was the mummy of course yeah that was the peak for sure yeah he had like a 50 uh decade or a five decade long career but definitely the peak was the mummy yeah um so some initial thoughts uh before we really get into the meat of the the pre-duction as we always do uh in episode one my initial thought is uh drags on a bit doesn't it oh uh, yeah i mean especially the whole courtroom scene yeah like i think Honestly, like, yeah, all the stuff at the Ape Village is, like, you know, I think a little bit elongated. Yeah, like, how long is it? Sorry, what did you say? I was just going to ask how long the rung time was. It's It's about two hours. Minutes. Yeah. Feels longer. I don't know. It, it feels like about two hours to me. Yeah. What were you going to say uh, before that? Um, Like, all the stuff at the Ape Village was just, you know, it seemed like uh, a lot. Uh, and from what I understand, like, actually, that, like, in the original ideas for the the script, like, there was actually going to be more of it. <laughs> yeah, I think so. But yeah, the whole scenes, basically this movie is, um, could be whittled down to just the action scenes, and it would probably still be. No, I don't know, I don't know about that, but, like, I think that there is some... Well, yeah, well, let me rephrase that. I think the action scenes are what make this movie good. <laughs> because they're good and they're really long like the um the scene in the cornfield where the, he's initially captured um, yeah that's, that's really a great good. long sequence uh and then the sequence in the uh where we're talking about where he's being chased because he's gonna get castrated great sequence yeah they do these really long action sequences really well but i don't know like you gotta have those classic lines in there though the classic lines are great but I like, you like... gotta have some of those exchanges between, like, Zayas and, uh, Taylor. Like, those are... I know, but I feel like we switched settings, like, nine times in the Ape Village, and it could've just... We could've just done it, you know, three times. Let's go to the, the cage room once, outside once, and yeah, the exactly. He, he, yeah, Yeah, there could've been some economy. Of, Instead, of... they, yeah, they go to yeah. courtroom... Jailhouse, courtroom, outside, yeah. jail. Yeah. I don't know. There's just also like, the funeral that he crashes. Yeah, I don't know. It's just all these sequences that is just like, do we really need? Like, let's just have just put all the information in into one yeah. scene here. Maybe, yeah. Uh, and frankly, the uh, we'll talk about it a bit more. But frankly, the the sets were not that inspiring in the Eight Village, it, like. My specific issue with the sets is the spaceship. Oh, the spaceship sucks. The inside of the spaceship's trash. Well, the spaceship looks like it's out of Star Trek the original series. <laughs> Which is like fine for Star Trek, but this this film should have a bit more budget than that. <laughs> you one would hope. The outside of the spaceship looks dope. Oh, the outside of the spaceship looks great. I assume that that's because it's probably some like um you know, scrapped aircraft or something. But yeah, it looks like a, or something. That's what it um, looks like. Yeah, it looks like a jet of some kind. Yeah, um, I, I think it was probably some piece of junk that they just spray painted, right? But um, yeah, right. Yeah, the inside of the spaceship was a bit rough, and uh, I think that they could have spent, you know, a little bit more of the production money there. 
but I don't know. I thought that a lot of the 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 shots of like them in the in the uh in Utah and everything all looked like fantastic. Oh yeah, the um, outdoor the exteriors were spectacular. And that whole scene with the chase of them being hunted is great as well. Yeah. Yeah, all the, again, and, all the exteriors like, are spectacular. I, I love like the camera work with like the helicopter shots and stuff at the beginning. Oh yeah, I love that as well. Yeah, this yeah. movie's really I think uh I don't know if this movie would have been quite as legendary if it wasn't shot so beautifully and scored so well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um but honestly, then again, like when it gets down to the Ape Village, I think the like the shooting of it is like, you know, less well, they inspiring. can't because they have they're in these these tight, shitty sets. Yeah, the yeah the sets aren't as great, but you know there's some good scenes in the Ape Village as well. Like I love when he's running through that museum. With yeah, the, that, that uh, one is great, but that's just the taxidermy. The taxidermy, that's fantastic. Which is really, really disgusting. <laughs> yeah, it's a horrible job of taxidermy. It's horrifying. The the human taxidermy in the film. Yeah, there's some really horrifying shots in this movie. Yeah, there really are. There's some very like where they're movies. hanging off all the corpses for like after their hunt. Oh yeah, some really unsettling stuff. Really unsettling. Also, like my initial thoughts uh, were also just like uh, about like the sort of um, allegory of this movie. Uh huh. Like it gets a lot of mileage out of this idea. I think. Go on. It's kind of hard to pin down what this movie is an allegory for. Yeah. Yeah, it's like just because wait, it, it works about... so much for so many different things. Yeah, it's basically just like, wait, are you talking about race? Wait, are you talking about class? Wait, are you talking like what? Do you... Wait. Yeah, I know exactly. Um, so yeah, I I think I think they were successful with that because you can analyze it from so many different angles. Yeah, it's just like a a sweeping allegory. <laughs> yeah, for and clearly that equality. whole thing really connected with people. I think. Yeah, and it you know. 1968, it, come on. Yeah, well, this was pretty subversive for the time, I think. Yeah, totally. Um, and, and also massively successful. Massively so, yes. I guess, should we start talking about how they made it and where it came from and all that pre-production yeah, so, nonsense? Yeah, so like you said, it was uh, it was based on a, a book by Pierre Boulle, right? Yeah, Pierre Boulle, who also coincidentally wrote uh, another great film, well, the uh, book. Bridge on the River Kwai? Yeah. He, the he wrote the thing that, the the book that got made into the film. And the book has a different title, right? Or what's the book? I may have typed it wrong. I have not ever read the book, so I, I, I love the movie, but um, it's it's also based on the book. Yeah, I but wrote. But it's also based on the truth, but loosely. <laughs> loosely, yeah. It's based on. It's well, very because... loosely based on reality. Well, because Pierre. Pierre Boulle is a very fascinating individual. He uh, he spent most of his early adulthood in French Indochina. He's French. I don't know. I think we mentioned that because it's written yeah. in French. Yeah. Uh, um, Which, uh, wait a second. Bridge of the River Kwai is in the Philippines, isn't it? Never mind. I think it is, yeah. That's okay. Cool. So close by, but not actually there. In that general area, yeah. but yeah, not exactly. But yeah, so he was, yeah, he, was, he, he spent most of his early, early adulthood in French Indochina. And then when uh, World War II broke out, he was part of the... Oh, so by the way, so French Indochina uh, is nowadays basically just uh, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia area. Yeah, that, that region. 
Yeah, so when World War II broke out, he, he was part of the Free French Resistance, um, but was captured by Vichy loyalists and put into a labor camp. Pretty intense World War II uh, experience for for him. Yeah. Which will come up again and again. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, that's another allegory about this. Is it, is, it a, is it an anti-war thing? Like, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, again, we'll see. Everybody involved in this film is also involved in World War II. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. Which is like kind of just the nature of Hollywood at the time as well, but yeah, uh, it's just kind of the nature of the world at the time, you know. Well, this is yeah. <laughs> so the novel uh, has quite a few similarities, but also quite a few differences. Should we go over the uh, kind of the differences and similarities in the novel? From yeah, the, from so, the film in like, the end. Yeah, what I think is uh, interest like interesting is that i think the novel actually doesn't have a lot of the really good beats that the film does a lot of the good what sorry a lot of the really good like things that make the film classic oh right yeah 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 well it's basically like the general idea but it, the, the general idea is is very similar but now like i mean unfortunately i haven't actually had time to read the book but no you know. me neither but we've <laughs> we've we've, we, we've we, read we, the breakdown we know what happens we've read the, the breakdown, book. but uh we know what happens but so I think they go to a different planet. So there's no like, there's no twist at the end. First, first of all, well there's a twist, but it's not. There's a, twist. it's a different twist. It's but a different it also twist yeah, that... it exists in like a whole different like there's a frame story where you like yeah. the 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 people telling the story find a message in a bottle. They're going to space. Yeah, and, and and they're like taking a vacation in space, and they find a message in a bottle that has the book in it. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um. They and in in the uh this is in the manuscript they find is the actual story of the book, the Planet of the Apes. Yeah. Which is. Yeah. Which... Um. So in in and in this story, uh, the apes are like quite a bit more advanced than they are in the film. Like we're talking about like a twentieth century level of technology. Yeah, they've got like helicopters and like labs yeah. and all this. Because like I mean I would say like in the film they're basically like. 1800s kind of technology right yeah that's kind of there it's 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 kind of a weird mixture in the yeah in the movie yeah and we'll get into you know, more into how that kind of happened but i think it kind of yeah. i think it would have been cool if they had left it uh how it was yeah the book. we'll get into all that more later but i let's... don't know i kind of well, well we'll talk about that because i think i have a different perspective on that than you do um cool. so yeah you have like the um the apes had uh you know gloves on their feet because they have hands on their feet yeah and they're like dressed in like suits and stuff yeah which i assume was not done for costume reasons because that would have been really annoying for the actors i don't know well we'll get to it i don't know if that's why okay yeah also the apes seem to have treated taylor a lot better in the book <laughs> yeah they actually they kind of accept him a lot more uh openly and as soon as they find out uh, oh, and his name's not Taylor, it's Thomas, I think. Right, it's Thomas in the book or something like that. In the like book, that. But, but when they yeah. find out Thomas is actually intelligent, they're like, oh, okay, you're allowed to live with us now. You're cool. Yeah, but whereas, obviously, in the film, they're like, no, nah, you're not intelligent. Yeah, they reject <laughs> Even him. after he's, like, speaking. He's yeah. like, <laughs> you know, because they can't accept it. They can't accept um, it, but they do accept it in the in the book. Yeah. Um, And then... They basically get into uh, a lot more Okay, detail. sorry, sorry. So, um, 
it's not Thomas. It's Ulysses. Oh right, sorry. Thomas is the. Uh... Is we'll talk about that. Yeah, later, that's who Thomas later. is, but Ulysses is the Chuck Heston character. Ulysses is a is a character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My mistake. So yeah, they get into a lot of backstory, and they basically use like genetic memory as a tool to give you all the backstory, which is just stupid if you ask me. But what happened, yeah. whatever. Um, <laughs> I guess it was less stupid at the time. Yeah. Um. Yeah, there's a lot more info about, like, you know, the fall of humanity and all that. As one uh, would expect in yeah. the book version. Um, so in the book, uh, Ulysses has a son with Nova. Yeah, it's again, it's all just creepier, and the whole Nova yeah. thing is creepy and unnecessary. <laughs> I think that they wanted, they, the studio probably just wanted to have a love interest in the, yeah, in exactly. the movie. Yeah, exactly. But um, she's, like, but... so inconsequential that it's, it, like, is almost painful how inconsequential right. to the plot she is. Yeah, so um so the ending is also different. Yeah, uh, as we mentioned. So the in the end in different. the in the book, uh hopefully, you know actually spoilers, we're gonna ruin the end of the book for you. We're gonna ruin long. the book right now. We're gonna ruin the book and uh you know we'll be back in you wanna skip this, we'll be back in like five minutes or whatever, okay? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, skip ahead a little bit. They actually escaped the planet of the apes in the book. Uh, yeah, they, they leave the planet because the spaceship wasn't destroyed. Yeah, so they leave on a flying machine. They they meet the spaceship in orbit, and they go back to Earth. Thank God. And uh, when they touch down on Earth, they are greeted by a military officer in a jeep who happens to be a gorilla. <laughs> so there's your twist: is that there's they your, go there's back your to twist. Earth, and then it's all. But eight. that's not it. That's not all. Oh, there's more. Because then we go back to the frame story and we find out that uh, the couple reading the manuscript is laughing their ass off and they uh, they discard the manuscript because, you know, they find the prospect of a speaking man to be ridiculous because they are, in fact, speaking chimps. Double <laughs> twist. <laughs> so I think that's cool ending. I like, I like what they that. did in the film, but this is also cool. Yeah, um, I like that ending. So, how did this sort of turn into a movie? Because this is 1963 by 1968, they had the movie done. So, I think that's actually interesting. Uh, that's a relatively short span, I think, for a book into a movie. Well, yeah, it is relatively short because the 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 a producer named Arthur P. Jacobs, who we'll talk about in a second. Uh, but he bought the film rights to the book before the book was published. He got... Oh, really? I think we've talked about this briefly when we've talked about, like, this era of Hollywood. But I think this happened a lot where, like, um, like producers were given opportunities to read book manuscripts early and, like, buy yeah, rights. Yeah, well, I mean, I think it was a significant revenue source for a lot of writers. Yeah, exactly. So... So yeah, so a, a guy named Arthur P. Jacobs uh, read it in 1963 prior to its publication and, and bought it quickly because he thought wow. it would make a good film. And yeah, obviously, I think that it would. Yeah, and, I mean, he was right. He was right. But he was more of a, a Arthur P. Jacobs. He was not really a producer. Like he was like when he bought this book. He was still mostly like a, a promoter. That was kind of what he had come up in in Hollywood. Right. And he had been in Hollywood since the 40s. His first, like, producing uh, uh, escapade, I'm going to call it. I don't know. It's not the right yeah. word. But it was a film called What a Way to Go, uh, right. which was originally supposed to star Marilyn Monroe. 
Um, okay. But unfortunately, Marilyn Monroe was shamelessly murdered by the FBI on behalf of <laughs> <Okay>. JFK <laughs> okay. and was unable okay. to be in the film. <laughs> All right. So, um, you know, I have no comment on that. <laughs> so they hired somebody else. I forget Another very famous actress of that time period, whose name escapes me, was cast instead, and that film was quite extremely successful, um, which gave Jacobs his uh, springboard into into production success. Are you talking about Shirley MacLaine? Shirley MacLaine, yeah. So, in order to like sell his uh, his ape film <laughs> to studios, he basically commissioned this massive packet of art and various ideas which was supposed to be like 130 pages long which he shopped around to studios just because he he really liked this idea of this ape movie he thought it was a good idea and i and um one of the producers on the film later said like well you know he came from promotion so you know this was he was good at this sort of thing and they described it as like the most uh uh elaborate promotional packet they had ever seen for a film no oh, really it's just so extensive and he, he yeah hired, so but like, there's no script at, at this point it's literally just a bunch of pictures and the book exactly basically he just got the rights yeah. to look at a bunch of pictures but so they need a writer well you know where do you go to find a writer like this there is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man it is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. Pit of a man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. So that uh, is Rod Serling, who has just done this uh, intro for us. Um, uh, that intro. is the intro from, I believe, season one of The Twilight Zone. The show he is known most The well show he is, he is most well known for doing, um, which is a great show. Fantastic show. Uh, one of my favorites, for sure. Uh, yeah. So it's Rod Serling. I always thought it was Rod Sterling. Yeah, it seems like it should be, but no, it's Sterling. It's Sterling. I'm going to call him Rod from here on out to avoid accidentally calling him Rod Sterling. Okay, good. Um, so yeah, Rod has a really interesting story, I think. Yes, he is a fascinating character. And like, I just love his intro to The Twilight Zone where he comes in and he's like, you know, so creepy and like weird. Yeah, he's such an interesting guy, and he's... Yeah, he was also the, his... I was just going to say, he was the bad boy of television, the young bad boy. Yeah, no, like, he definitely was extremely subversive, like, for the time. Yeah. Yeah, he also uh, has an interesting, like, his, like, history before this of, like, you know, having been through, like, World War II, having seen some, like, serious shit, yeah. and then, like, you know, going and making this show and like you know definitely having a very like very clear anti-war stance yeah he's very anti-war and like super uh uh like a confrontational with the 
with his corporate censors. Yeah, definitely. Um, so you want you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. Well, so he graduated from high school in 1943, uh, which was a pretty tumultuous time. Yeah. To to graduate high school, and he apparently immediately volunteered, like right after he graduated. And he spent the first year of his service training as a paratrooper, where he became a talented boxer, apparently, where he was known for his, quote, berserker style. What does that mean? Is that like Rocky? I guess so. Well, <laughs> according, to, according to one of his servicemen, he would, quote, get his nose broken in the first bout, then again in the last bout. So he was like, oh. just fucking giving her the whole time. Right. Which is an interesting detail. But that's just while he was waiting to get sent into action. Right. Um, he was then sent to the uh, to the Pacific Coast, where he was very upset because he was he sus- rightly suspected that he was going to be sent into the Pacific Theater. Yeah. Which I don't know. From what I understand, aside from Serling's reason for this, yeah, the Pacific Theater was very much, you know. Much more unpleasant. Oh, it was fucking horrifying. Like we won't get into <laughs> yeah. we won't get into World War Two history too much here, but but the Pacific Theater was was on un- was intense to say the least. And we'll get into some of the yeah. details as as to why in yeah. a moment. But that's not exactly why Rod was disappointed that he was going to the Pacific Theater. Yeah, because he wanted to he wanted to fight Hitler. Yeah, he wanted to go to Germany and fight. I think he. He personally wanted to box Hitler. Yeah, you know, I can't blame him. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I'd watch you boxing Hitler. That'd be a great match. Oh, God. <laughs> I wonder who would win in the fight, you or Hitler. I, I, I don't know. I, For what I understand, Hitler was actually quite frail. Yeah, I think probably you. But Hitler, <laughs> yeah. was, Hitler was zonked out. Anyway, apparently, though, like... Despite this, apparently he was not a marvelous soldier, Rod. Yeah, he was kind of a maverick. Yeah, which doesn't surprise me. Yeah, no, that doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> but he would, like, wander off on his own, and, like, he pissed people off, apparently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely. Which, whether or not it's true, but uh, people say that his behavior led him to be transferred into the Demolition Squad, which was known as the Death Squad because it had a ridiculous casualty rate, as you can imagine. Yeah, I, I can. <laughs> so, yeah, basically the Demolition Squad is, like, the people who, like, you know, run in to, like, blow up bridges and shit and under brutal heavy fire because their their jobs are, like, you know, absolutely necessary in a lot of cases. Yeah. Which, hence, the ridiculous casualty rate. Apparently, the, the well, the sergeant of this squad... uh said, quote, he screwed up somewhere al- along the line. Apparently, he got on someone's nerves. And so that's why he was there. So that's, I think that's where the, the, the story that he, he pissed somebody off comes from. So there's right, not really yeah. any, anything to back that up. But. Right. Maybe they just didn't like his general demeanor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. His maverick ways. Yeah. But according to the same, the same sergeant, he, like, he was kind of... Not in the moment, right? To being a soldier, like he was. They said he didn't have like the wit or something. He once he forgot to load his extra magazines while they were waiting in a foxhole, which you know, to me, an untrained person. Yeah, no, but I mean, he did spend these like a year 
training to be a paratrooper. <laughs> training to be a paratrooper, yeah. I feel like that's probably... That's probably a big deal. Also, you know, if you don't load your magazines and you're in a firefight... Yeah, exactly. You know, you, you don't, don't have, have any ammo. Any, you don't have any magazines. Um, um, so, do you want to tell this next story that's pretty horrifying? But... Oh, about um, witnessing uh, a fellow soldier doing a stand-up comedy routine and getting decapitated when a uh, a plane dropped a crate on his head. Yeah. So I don't know if that's true, but... I don't know about that, but that seems like some serious shit. That's... Yeah, that's a story that I... I, I it was attributed to him a couple of times, but it's pretty... Right. Uh... Also, you know, I don't necessarily trust any of Rod Serling's version of events here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. He seems like the kind of guy who would just make shit up. Yeah, totally, exactly. So this is... Yeah, it's kind of an unbelievable story, to be honest, but... yeah. Uh, but story, I mean, from what I do understand, like he, um, you know, he genuinely uh, had some heroic moments, like during the war. Uh, oh yeah, he saw some some serious action. He was present at the taking of Manila. Yeah. So just a, a extremely brief <laughs> history lesson is that that's where the Japanese a- uh, Admiral Sanji Iwabuchi ordered uh, 17,000 troops to fight to the death. So I, most people know about, you know, the, uh, the kamikaze planes, but there was, also, there was also, yeah, troops ordered to fight, stand their ground to the death. It was pretty fucking brutal, and uh, Rod's regiment reportedly had a 50% casualty rate with over 400 deaths, which is unbelievable. That's what we were talking about earlier about the Pacific Theater. Uh, there's a story I'm looking for. Just give me a minute. Are you talking about how he like? Oh, about running into the, the line of fire to rescue a performer who had been on stage. Yeah. Well, yeah, because there was, they were. Uh, uh, it's a slightly separate incident, but there was like a, they were in Manila, and then it was like bombed, and they were like attacked out of nowhere. And his superiors saw him like run onto the stage to pull a performer out of the line of fire. So, yeah, I think he got a an award for that. Was that the Bronze Star? I believe so. Yeah. Uh. So yeah, he 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 came out of the war with a a Purple Heart and a Bronze Star, and the Philippine Liberation Medal. Yeah. So he was a uh, he had he did some shit in the war. That was yeah. Pretty intense fucking uh, tour of duty there. Yeah. And, like, you could very much tell that that affected him, like, deeply. Yeah, definitely. I think it affected, as it affected everybody who was involved, I think a lot of Yeah. The, uh, we've talked about this before, I think, when we talk about this era of Hollywood. Yeah, so, after the war, um, he had, like, to do some serious recovery uh, from his wound, which is, I guess, what he got the part for. <laughs> Yeah, well, he, well, he, cause he, he did uh, go back into action after he was wounded. Cause he, right. during the taking of Manila, he, he got hit by shrapnel and then okay. he went back and was briefly part of the occupation of Japan. Okay. But anyway, that's the war. We'll move on from that. I just, yeah. we just thought it was important to include. Well, it's important to, like, I think, get his character. You know what I mean? Yeah, because he is very important to this film. Yes. Yeah, really. So, um, and then, so he kind of, uh, he started doing radio after that, right? Yeah, basically. he. I think he goes to college and joins his college radio or whatever and then gets into radio production. 
So he spends most of the 40s basically just like writing, just being extremely prolific, writing like hundreds of radio programs and occasionally acting on them and and producing radio programs. So just, you know, extremely prolific in, in radio. And then through that radio, eventually he transferred into television, as a lot of people did when television became, you know, more popular in the 19, early 1950s. And then his breakthrough was in 1955. He wrote an episode of a show called The Craft Television Theater, okay. which is just like it was like a, a, a an anthology of like drama stories. So he right. just wrote like an episode. Uh, I re- the episode didn't seem that interesting, to be honest, but. Right. Apparently, after he wrote this episode, it, he started receiving nonstop phone calls, and like, like from fans or from the uh, no, studio? no, no, from from people looking to to hire him or to buy his writing, because mm. like apparently that was like a, a, a well received, right? Um, so he, he he decided to uh, take some of this this uh, success and uh, use it to his own devices. Success. <laughs> Kind of led him into these, as I mentioned earlier, this kind of series of frustrating battles with TV censors. Right. Um, like one of the best examples I saw is like there was a, a um something he was working on was sponsored by a, a lighter company. Right. Um, so they forced him to take out a line like, "Can you hand me a match?" or like, "Light me oh. up a match" or something. Okay. Yeah. This just stuff like that. You know, he well, was that's getting annoying. But... Exactly. Like, that seems, like, annoying, but that doesn't seem like it would, like, wreck the story I'm trying to sell, tell. Yeah, that... But I do think that, you know, they were probably not on board for a lot of his uh, themes. Yeah, that's, like, a pretty uh, a benign version of it. But I think yeah. I think the bigger issues was when he was trying to talk about anti-war stuff or be more subversive just in general. Yeah, definitely. So he wanted to do something where he could, uh, you know, tackle these controversial themes without being beholden to corporate sponsorship. So what did he do? He went to a different place. You're traveling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, the Twilight Zone. Uh, so yeah, he made the Twilight Zone. He did, yeah, he did the Twilight Zone, which uh, we won't talk about today too much because we will get deeply lost if we try to do that. Yeah, so he um, made Twilight Zone, which is, you know... A fantastic It's a show, show. about, you know... Uh, just sort strange of weird, strange things. situations going on, you know. And oftentimes, it was used. Uh, he used the kind of weird situation as like an allegory for some, you know, social uh commentary. It's basically what this movie was trying to do. <laughs> this movie could have been an episode of The Twilight Zone. This movie would have easily been an episode of The Twilight Zone, especially in the in the the fourth season, I believe, where they were doing hour long episodes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Then they absolutely could have this could have just been they would have just cut those fifteen minutes and boom, <laughs> episode. <laughs> um. Anyway, so The Twilight Zone ran from nineteen fifty nine to nineteen sixty four. So actually, he started writing this movie while it was still running but okay. i think by 1964 i think he was getting pretty bored with it with the twilight zone with the twilight zone yeah they'd yeah. been canceled twice 
yeah. already and revived. Yeah, I, I think he was also not getting along too well with the studio. Which doesn't surprise me. Yeah. <laughs> he doesn't seem or to sorry, have gone along network, with... I guess. Yeah, the network. The but... network, but... um, the, the TV equivalent. Essentially, he, like, right after the Twilight Zone, he moves on to this project, right? Basically, yeah. And then he moved on again after that, because he, like, he was only involved earlier on in this project. Yeah, so, although he made some seriously important contributions, like, uh, like the ending is essentially all Rod Serling, right? Yeah, well, there's, there is debate over who added what, but... Oh, okay. But, yeah, I think I But think the whole idea pretty... that this was Earth all along, that's, like... I that's think it. that, yeah, that's... Yeah. Well, we'll get to it. We're going to go through all oh, the all, okay. Yeah, all the, the genesis of the script. Yeah, we're going to go through all that a little bit later because, like, there was a few different writers who did a few different things, and the ending is obviously an extremely important detail, so we'll get that straight right, towards okay, the cool. end of this segment. Okay, cool. But, yeah, he he... He was fairly faithful to the novel in right. his some 30 treatments that he did. <laughs> but there were the important details. Like you say, the twist ending was incredibly important. Yeah. The, the changing of the frame story was incredibly important. Um, there's this great quote here from the executive producer of the film, Mort Abrams. Yeah, he says, uh, it was a very difficult adaptation and getting the essence of the plot Trans- translating it from Boole's novel was very, very difficult. And Rod kind of got it right away. I mean, three or four drafts is nothing. It was pretty well complete by the time it got into Frank's hands. Frank's, uh, the director, Franklin Schaefer. Uh, Frank just loved... Schaffner. Schaffner. Sorry. Frank just loved it right from the beginning and really m- made only very minor changes, mostly a little dialogue here and there. So yeah, I mean, uh, I don't know about the three or where he's getting the three or four drafts from, because alternatively it was reported that he wrote 30, as I said. But right. But the, the sentiment, I think, is, is pretty accurate. Um, Maybe he wrote 30 treatments, but he only turned in five. Yeah, that's, so that's four, actually... Right? That's probably accurate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we're, we're going to kind of go after that. So Rod's versions kind of all maintained the detail uh, that the apes lived in an urban metropolis. Yeah. That was very important to Rod's versions, I think. Not important, but that was a a prime detail, Um, complete with helicopters and everything. Yeah, so I I assume the reason why that wasn't done was for budgetary reasons. Among other things, but But, yeah. But also, I kind of, I think it was a good choice. uh, And I don't. the apes be less advanced than we are. Because it's kind of like, um, like I like the idea that the the apes are kind of just on the cusp of you know where we are, so they're reliving like the mistakes that we've already made. You but know? they could have they could have had it so that they arrived when they like just were creating like nuclear weapons. You know. Yeah, that that could have been another thing, but like you know, like I kind of like it when the. You know, they're talking about doing things in the future that humans have already done. And it, it, it just makes it, like, it really drives home the point that, you know, the apes are progressing in the same way that we are. You know what I mean? So it's for a, a, a thematic reason that you want it. Exactly. Like, exactly. Because, like, like, I really want to show, like, the apes, like... Because the whole idea is, like, the apes are just like us, but it's upside down, right? 
yeah, it's just, just, just. So the having same, them step through really, the same steps that we've gone through, like showing that happen, like really drives that point home to me. Yeah, maybe I just don't like the set design. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe. I also just love them riding horses. I think yeah, that's cool. Gorillas that's just riding cool. horses is sick. I, I mean, um, the uh, in some of the the art, the the early art, uh, concept art, they have the gorillas coming in with helicopters, and that looks pretty fucking sick too. That's true. That's true. Like uh, fucking CCR starts playing, and uh, <laughs> fucking bunch of gorillas in helicopters roll in. That's sick as fuck, dude. <laughs> Um, oh man, imagine Apocalypse Now, but with apes. Right. Um, it wasn't CCR at Apocalypse Now. Wasn't it? No, CCR was using Forrest Gump. Oh yeah, Apocalypse Now. Which definitely, is, I think, is echoing that scene in Apocalypse Now. But yeah, it's... it was the doors in Apocalypse Now, wasn't it? It's in that movie, but I don't think it's the, I don't think it's the scene you're thinking of. The helicopter scene, are you sure? No, I'm stopping. We're derailing the podcast. So we can okay, what's out. the uh, the helicopter scene in? Because it's the end is the song at the beginning. This is the Doors. I think it's CCR. Uh, there's definitely CCR in that movie. They play CCQ later on in the movie. Oh, there's well, there's a whole scene where they don't they do like Ride of the Valkyries, like the Wagner thing. Oh wait, yeah, that must be what I'm thinking of. Because I was thinking of the uh, the helicopter like riding into CCR, but that's probably I think that is just no. That Forrest is one hundred percent Forrest Gump. <laughs> that's just Forrest Gump. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's the the flight of the Valkyries in in Apocalypse Now. Yeah, that's that's um, what it is. There is, is CCR in that movie though. Yeah, maybe there is, but but not in that scene. Forrest yeah. Gump. Um, Equally as moving of a war film, some might argue more moving. No, but I mean, like Forrest Gump's more than just a war film. I know, but it you could just take out the war aspects and it would be a better war film than Apocalypse Now. I don't know why I'm being so aggressive about this. Anyway, this is not at all related. This is so, so unrelated. We'll just we'll plow through this. Um, okay. Um, so anyway, I like the the gorillas and horses. You can't take that away from me. Okay, fine, fine. <laughs> no, I like the I love the gorillas and horses. I think it's sick. I just I think you know all oh, the red, white, and blue. To like right. you know a gorilla on a fucking helicopter, right? But um, so even with Rod's extensive like you know thirty treatments that he wrote and uh and Jacob's one hundred and thirty page booklet, so this massive pre production effort, um, they still don't have any studios who are interested in the project. So Jacob's instead of you know continuing to take this thing to studios and then continuing to fucking shoot him down he um in 1965 he was like okay i'm going straight to the fucking source so so he finds john Nelson. yeah so he makes who at this point in time was a huge star yeah exactly like you what do you like you know uh ten commandments ben-hur like fucking you know you name it but yeah but anyway uh, they, they, they took this massive yeah. promotional package straight to Charlton Heston, who is like, hells yeah. Yeah. This is great. Yeah. Just like, why don't they do this more often? I think they yeah. probably. Uh, I, I think he really, like, you know, um, he 
was into like the whole social commentary aspect of it like this was before he became like an nra whack job so like he oh, was God. like you know <laughs> more into this aspect of it yeah 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 totally like that whole more. reversal is just like so bizarre to me how that happened because like this is like a pretty anti-war like somewhat anti-gun film <laughs> It's a super anti-establishment film <laughs> yeah. in a lot of ways. Which is, like, was his, like, perspective at the time. But, like, you know, I don't know what the fuck happened to him. <laughs> like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. We can, we'll, maybe let's not talk about that, that a bit though, more that's like, later. Yeah. So at the time, he was super into this promotional package. He was like, yeah, fucking free love, apes. Yeah, all that exactly. Shit. Um, 1960, uh, this was 1965, so, you know. Yeah. It was 1965 when he came onto the project. When yeah, when yeah. they showed him the 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 package, and I bet it was pretty like before. This is before they had a studio, so like imagine Rod's, you know. Yeah. Also, I think to to the studio, this whole thing becomes a lot more attractive once Chuck Heston is attached to it. I think that's the whole point. I think that's yeah. why they went to why Jacobs went to Charles and he was like, yeah. okay, I gotta get. I mean, I think that in. that's a that's a thing that's come up. I think in a couple movies that we've talked about. Yeah. where you just bring on an actor who's into it and then all of a sudden the studio's into it. Yeah, exactly. And it's re- really smart, you know. Like like John Wick. Like John Wick, exactly. Exactly. Didn't they go to Keanu first? Yeah, it's exactly like that. Another <laughs> yeah. weird continuation. Yeah, exactly. We'll try to get try to get a continuation in every episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or every other um, episode. Yeah, exactly. So Charlton Heston had just finished this movie that I've never heard of called The Warlord. Right. Well, maybe I have to see it. Maybe it's great, um, yeah. but I've well, never I mean, seen you it. You know, it's a prime, like, era Charlton Heston movie, so it's probably good. Yeah, but I mean, like, a prime era Elvis movie isn't necessarily any good. It's because Elvis isn't a good actor. <laughs> <laughs> I would argue Charlton Heston also isn't a good actor. <laughs> I, he's a dedicated actor, that's for sure. Okay, I think I think we're gonna have some friction here, but let's just move right, right on. Definitely is is Jimmy Stewart a good actor? <laughs> yes. Or is he just a dedicated actor? Is there a difference? Yes. Does talent exist? Oh God! <laughs> See, let's move on. Good, good, good point. Um, so he'd just done this film called The Warlord, um, directed by a guy named Frank Schaffner, um, who Charlton Heston was like, "You should work with this guy." Um, and Jacobs was like, "Okay, I don't have a director or a studio, so absolutely." But, oh, I just want to. This just made me think of another Charlton Heston movie that I saw recently, which was El Cid, which was El Cid, which was in this era as well. Point that out. Other movies that though, mo- why he was a star. When did that movie come out, El Cid? I think like nineteen sixty one or something. It's pretty good. It's like, it's like a really epic movie. <laughs> Doesn't surprise and, you know, me. I'm, I'm a sucker for that. Yeah, yeah, I uh, I know. I'm aware. It's a big historical epic. <laughs> big battle scenes and shit. Yeah, that's pretty fucking sick. Yeah. Now that they have a director and Charlton Heston, the uh, young guy, new director of Fox Films, a guy named Richard Zanuck, um, Is it Zanuck decided or Zanuck. 
Oh, I don't know. Zanuck? Zanuck? I, I guess I'm just thinking of Canuck with a Z. Yeah, well. But it's probably right. It's probably Zanuck. Yeah. Um, Rich yeah, this, Zanuck. This, guy, this guy's an important figure in film history. Yeah, and um, but this is right when he was new. Yes. Because fa- he replaced his father, whose first name I forget, but I assume was also a Zanuck. Daryl F. Zanuck. There you go. So, yeah, Richard Zanuck buys the project even though he thought the script needed, quote, a lot of work. Um, and he was also concerned that people would laugh at the makeup. Yeah. Which is a you fair know, concern. That's a fair concern. So at this point, it would have been um, Rod's script, right? Yeah, yeah. It was just Rod writing at this point. Um, so in order to alleviate these fears that Richard had, they gave them $5,000 to do a make up test you get it <laughs> <laughs> better ape writing. up make up m- test m- ape up Mape, m- did you make up? that up yeah i did that, that was okay me. yeah so uh i saw this um i thought it was really interesting it it it's clearly uh a different view of the uh of the film, which is much more faithful to the book, I get. Yeah, much like, more... You, yeah, you could definitely see that, like, you know, A, the apes are a bit more advanced, and also they're treating who Thomas in this a lot better. Thomas Taylor, Thomas, yeah. Ulysses, all the same character. They're treating um, him way nicer, yeah. Yeah, and, like, you know, Zayas is, like, not a dick to him the entire time. <laughs> and he's wearing a tie and a lab coat, not yeah, this he's, weird... Yeah, he's wearing clothes instead of, like, rags. Yeah. Which, you know, I am not... I don't think is as interesting. Like, I, 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 think, I think it's better the way that they had it in the movie. I think Where he's, I like, like humiliated, way... you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, yeah, Charlotte Heston. I saw yeah. I thought you were talking about Zayas, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I think it's way better that he was Also, I think the rags. makeup in the movie is better, but, like... But that, yeah, well, yeah. Well, that's the whole obvious. point of this, this... Like, yeah, the, the ape makeup was supposed to be the point of this, like the Dr. Zayas ape makeup. Yeah, well, clearly they learned something from doing this test. Something, because, well, what... It convinced Zanuck, I guess... Because he was like, yeah, all right, that that's not funny. Even though I don't know, to me it looks kind of funny, but I don't know. Yeah, um, like no, the idea of them wearing make like ape makeup is not funny, but like, uh, I'm just kidding, like obviously they just did a higher quality makeup for the actual film. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. it's it's lower quality here. They didn't quite get the muzzle down. Yeah, I don't know. The, exactly. The, it's not although the one finished. thing that was not higher quality in the film is the doll prop. Because it's the exact same one. Yeah, they use the same doll prop in this film. I don't know where it came from, whose doll it is, but they still yeah. had it lying around three years later. Yeah, exactly. When they actually filmed the movie. Or yeah. two years later, rather. But yeah, like you were saying with the makeup also, like uh, you said that uh, he looks a bit more like a werewolf than an ape. Yeah, <laughs> that's what it looked like to me. He looks like a werewolf. He looks like a, yeah. a, a teen wolf. Exactly. So, like, I mean, it makes sense, you know, it only cost $5,000. Half of that yeah. budget was probably spent on film. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, probably. 
so yeah, so Zanek was 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 into it, so he was like, "All right, we'll do it. You can start on uh, May 1967, which was at the time only seven months in the future." Yeah. So, well, I mean, you know, they they seem to have a lot of stuff down though at this point. But, yeah, well, I mean, they've got a lot of things figured out, but but yeah. now they, they still really need have to, to get... bring all the cast on board and everything and build sets and shit truly figure out the makeup and finish the script and all this. Yeah, that's true. So, as you mentioned, this is when kind of concerns that Rod's vision of the technologically advanced apes would be a bit expensive. Yeah. Began to crop up. And it was ultimately uh, Frank Schaffner who made the final call to switch to a primitive ape society. Right. I wouldn't call the ape society primitive. More primitive. But they're definitely less advanced than, like, you know, the way that uh, I, you know, yeah, the, they're they're not at a twentieth century technology level. Yeah, it's an earlier, yeah, an earlier society. Yeah, like uh, I said, like they, you know, they have photographs and guns and you know shit like that. So, what human year would you equate it to? Why well, you you can't really equate it directly, but I would say like eighteen like fifty or something like that. Eighteen fifty. Yeah, I was gonna yeah. say eighteen seventy two. Um. Because, you know, it's it's almost like kind of like a Western, you know what I mean? Like the way that it's, it's a lot out. like a Western. Yeah. The, the uh, and the sets kind of look like a Western yeah, as well. Except like weird, like shaped buildings. Cause... Like an alien Western, kind of like exactly. Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. So in order to make this switch to a more primitive ape, oh, sorry, to a less technologically advanced ape society, Jacobs hires a writer named Michael Wilson to uh, to do some rewrites and fit the new setting and clean up the dialogue. Right. Noted, noted communist Michael Wilson. <laughs> <laughs> yes, noted communi- con- communist Michael Wilson. He's a fascinating character, as you say, mostly because he was blacklisted in, I think it was 1953 or 4, during, obviously, the McCarthy era. Yeah. But So he wrote a bunch of films pre-World War II that he went uncredited for. And I don't know if this was, like, retrospectively, like, his credits were removed due to the McCarthy stuff, or if he just wasn't credited initially. Right. But he wrote It's a Wonderful Life, or co-wrote It's a Wonderful Life. Uh, well, yeah, that would have been before his blacklisting, so... Well, yeah, it was long No, I, I, I assume that that... I don't know, there might be various reasons for him, but I don't, I don't think they actually removed anybody's name from films yeah i just wasn't sure how that works just like Um, if it was related that he was uncredited to these earlier ones but he did a lot of work uncredited i think that's just how hollywood worked (laughs) yeah yeah i think so um but obviously like definitely when he was blacklisted they didn't credit him (laughs) yeah yeah when he well when he was blacklisted he moved to france um, okay because i know like obviously like uh, people like uh, dalton trumbo or whatever wrote under pseudonyms right yeah, well, when that's what he did. Blacklisted. That's what he did. I don't know what his pseudonym was, but during the 50s and early 60s, uh, he wrote for Hollywood, um, but he wrote, interestingly, he wrote the yeah. film Bridge on the River Kwai, and also your one of your favorite films, Lawrence <laughs> of Arabia. Yeah, so uh, both David Lean films, actually. Oh, interesting. Yeah, um, same director. So Yeah. yeah. So again, bridge over the river, or bridge on the river Kwai, rather. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I I don't know if I'm going to be ruining bridge on the river Kwai for you, but uh, you know, the bridge isn't over the river Kwai. 
<laughs> well, it's on the River Kwai. Yeah, at the end of the movie, yeah, it's on the River Kwai. <laughs> yeah, Originally, so it's, it's over good. the River Kwai. <laughs> yeah, uh, well, that's what I was going to say earlier, is I think I wrote the title of the book wrong. I think I wrote the title as The Bridge Over the River Kwai. Oh, I think the okay. book is also I'm, on the I'm River I'm not Kwai. sure, yeah. Anyway, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, they get this guy to do kind of some rewrites, and there's a third unnamed writer who gets involved at some point and this is like the writing is so confusing um as it often is yeah so as i mentioned earlier we're gonna go through kind of the the different endings as they were written and by whom so we can see how they evolved so this is archived from rodserling.com so okay so this is what you're gonna do you're gonna go through the layers of of sediments to try to find like you know (laughs) <laughs> different exactly it's a strata stratological uh stratological, stratigraphical exactly. exactly you're gonna go through the different layers of script to find out where the ideas came from precisely so we're gonna start at the very just bottom. like cornelius does just like i'm just like cornelius exactly so yeah do you want to start us off and, uh, and we'll, we'll trade off here okay so um so this is the ending as it evolves so uh in uh Sorry, I fucking suck with date formats. I think that's May 15th. Just so our listeners outside of Canada know, we use a different date format than other places, so I'm always confused whenever I look at dates to try to figure oh, yeah, out, it's, is it me formatted too. the way I expect it to, or is it formatted backwards? Okay. Yeah, month and day <laughs> always gets confused when you're exactly. Uh So, just so you know. So, prior to May 15th, 1964, um, uh, at an archaeological dig, they find caskets, a human doll which cries mama, and and film showing bombs, explosions, etc. Zaius doesn't want Thomas to take Nova, but he escapes with her. And Lefevre Who knows who that sca- is? Her and Lefevre, and tries to fly, and flies home to Earth, which is inhabited by apes. So, that is we, that's very similar to the original. Yes. Who's Lefevre? I don't know. I think that must be a character. A character which no longer exists. Written out. Might be uh, the one who got lobotomized in the end. Oh, maybe, yeah. Whatever his name was. Larson Larson or whatever. So yeah, so then only a few days later on May 22nd, 1964, my birthday, not 1964, but um, this is a, a, a Serling written ending. They find the doll and film showing a mushroom cloud filmed by U.S. Air Force. Thomas delivers a long monologue explaining everything, but gorillas in a helicopter try to assassinate him. The apes plan to explain everything as a hoax using a robot resembling Thomas, but a switch is made at the last minute and he escapes in the landing craft with Nova and flies off as Zaius muses about his future. So that's a very convoluted one. Yeah. Yeah, there are definitely some interesting ideas. It's very, uh, I would say, uh, ambitious ideas, I think. Yeah, that's an ambitious one for sure. Yeah. I like I like the film with the with the mushroom clouds and stuff. It's very obvious now that what they're trying to show happened. Yeah. Here. Yeah. So they make it more explicit, I think, in that ending. Yeah, yeah. Um so also uh a similar one is that um that they uh, they find references to disease, uh, which corresponds to radioactivity, 
Explosions near the excavation loosen the terrain, which reveal a giant metal arm. Uh, Thomas reads the ship's computer tapes, then looks at the Big Dipper and realizes he's home. The arm is the Statue of Liberty. Right. So, yeah, so he's, he's, he's closing in on it. Yeah. So, well, now we know that the Statue of Liberty comes from Serling. Yeah. So, finally, in uh, December of 1964, he's got, Serling's got another one. This is, they find the doll, then skeletons, and a sign reading, Public Air Raid Shelter. Thomas presents his hypothesis about an atomic holocaust. He escapes and sees the arm, the Statue of Liberty, loosened by explosions. At his ship, he's able to read the computer tapes and realizes where he is. As he flies off in a helicopter towards the jungle, he spots the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> okay, so now we're in uh, January 6th, 1965. Uh, Thomas escapes to his ship with Cornelius and Zira following close behind, and together they discover the metal arm. Aircraft engines are heard, and they tell him to escape, but he stares at the arm. Finally realizing where he is, the gorillas arrive to shoot him dead. As they carry him away, the camera pans to reveal the full Statue of Liberty in the sand. Sick. So, so as seems... you can see, like, there's a lot of like fine adjustments happening here. Yeah, that's a he, good he's ending. Really, he's really playing around with it, yeah. They kill off uh, uh, Thomas in that ending. I think that's, that's an interesting way to do it. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know. Is he effectively killed off in the actual ending? I mean, his soul is destroyed. Yeah, like... So, I don't know. He loses the will to live. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so what, 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 what was the next alteration? Well, it seems here that this is where Rod is done writing. It right. like that was his last interpretation. Because next they have, uh, from February of 1965, so like a month later, just over a month later, they've got a script from an author who's unknown, but the script is bound with 20th, 20th Century Fox cover. Right. So basically it's exactly the same, except there's just dialogue changes at the end. So basically they this is when we know they've got this unknown author who's come in and just done a bunch of dialogue updates. Right. Okay. The uncredited author. The uncredited author, yeah. Yeah. So finally, um, in uh, May 5th, 1967, so roughly two years after the original version. Yeah. Um, Zira, Cornelius, and Thomas, his name's still Thomas, escape yep. to the excavation. Zayas arrives with the gorillas, and he promises to give in if solid evidence is found. They find a human doll which can talk, but Zayas goes back on his word. So Thomas escapes on horseback with Nova and ends up riding onto the beach where he discovers the Statue of Liberty. So this is essentially what happens in the film. Yeah, so that's... Except that's... his name is Taylor. So there you, there you go. We kind of, that's, as we were talking about earlier, it is kind of confusing who, where, what each bit came from. But Yeah, so definitely like the Statue of Liberty idea is certainly... Yeah, so the idea that they were on Earth the whole time is clearly uh, a Serling original. Yeah, um, and I definitely think uh, Serling had some ambitious ideas, uh, yeah. which yeah. may have contributed to why he was uh, replaced. 
Yeah, he had some clearly ambitious ideas, and he was, uh, as we have learned, difficult to control. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I guess I guess they were like, okay, you're you're you've done all you can do here. Yeah, clearly he was married. Well, I don't know. Clearly is not necessarily accurate, but he really he, liked the idea of advanced apes. Yeah, he liked the apes in the helicopters. Yeah, he, he the, yeah. <laughs> Just as I, he really wanted to see, you know, fucking uh, 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 C- CCR blasting as the, <laughs> the the gorillas fly in. Um, okay. So, so now they basically have the script. This is yeah, uh, uh, Michael Wilson. Michael Wilson has 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 basically come across the version of the script that we see in the film. Exactly. So, so what do they do next? Now you've got basically simultaneously while the script is being finished they've got to work on the uh the mape up or the makeup because the joke's not working um, mape up that like you delivered it better that time <laughs> mape yeah up. yeah it's all about the delivery the mape up you just gotta say it fast yeah so they hire a guy named john chambers who surprise surprise is also a fascinating character who was in world war ii Oh. Basically, to sum it up, he was a medic during World War II, um, which assumedly was intense. Presumably. What did I say? You said assumedly. Is assumedly not a word? Let's find out. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mean to. Oh, it is a word. It's a word. In a presumed manner is the. <laughs> okay. So presumed is probably more accurate. Presumably, yeah. So immediately after World War II, he started like working on designing prosthetics uh, for veterans, which is how he got into like you know uh, makeup and prosthetic design, which I thought was super interesting. Yeah, and that that was transferred into making essentially prosthetics for Hollywood. Yeah, yeah, and his like he I, I forget his exact resume, but he did a lot of like sci-fi alien stuff, and he was basically yeah. the top of the industry by the yeah, time no. this film came um, around. And, I don't know, uh, what do you think of the makeup in this movie? <sighs> okay. <laughs> I definitely, I think the chimps, they seem kind of stiff. The chimps are a bit stiff. Uh, like, especially the... there's that scene where they do the, uh, where Charles Nelson kisses the chimp. Oh, that's rough. Yeah, that's not Or it's good. like, you can really see the, uh... <laughs> the stiffness of the face. It's, it's, yeah, it's not that maneuverable. But I think the orangutan is a bit better. Yeah. But I think, I think they did a pretty good job. Yeah, they, I think they did a good job on their budget. Especially considering the amount of maneuverability that was required. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and I think I think they did a great job with the eyes. I mean, they definitely got a lot of mileage. Out of it. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the it was a bit stiff, especially in the chimps, and specifically the mouth. Yeah, and that kiss at the end was just awkward. <laughs> yeah, you know, she was like, "You're so ugly. <laughs> You're so ugly." Hilarious. <laughs> I know it was good. Um, roll reversal. Yeah, so John Chambers actually wasn't involved in the uh, early makeup test with Dr. Zayas. But he was like, yeah, they did a pretty good job in the test. Right. But yeah, definitely like what he put together was definitely better. Was definitely better and more yeah. uh, practical, I think. Yeah. Like, I, 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 I'm not going to put any of the uh, 
blame for the stiffness of the makeup on him. Like, I definitely think he was working on a budget. He was working on a budget, and they were asking a lot of him. Yeah, exactly. Of makeup in general. <laughs> and, you know, it it was certainly effective enough that it didn't ruin the film. No. No, it didn't. So the next person involved is art director, who I apparently have a bone to pick with, William Kreber, who in uh, modern times, current days, looks a lot like Eric Clapton does, hmm. unfortunately. Right. So he, in order to make it, you know, not metropolitan and uh, uh, less advanced, he based it off of what he described as the troglodyte cities of in Turkey. Um, troglodyte? The fuck yeah, does that well, mean? Well, I think it's 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 not his word because when I was like, "What the fuck is he talking about?" I googled troglodyte cities in Turkey, and troglodyte was used in the description of the uh, ancient underground cities of Cappadocia. Oh. oh, okay, it's underground. That's what it means. Yeah, exactly. Okay. No, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Also, interesting thing about the word troglodyte as it relates to this film. Uh-huh. <laughs> did you know that the Latin name for chimpanzee is pantroglodytes? I did not know that. Interesting. Of the genus pan. Well, perhaps we'll talk about that more next week. Perhaps. Are we going to talk a lot about apes? We might talk about apes a bit. So yeah, so Eric Clapton uses the these ancient cities as an inspiration, which is actually a lot like the from the Stargate film, now that oh, I think yeah. about it. There's some similarities there. So finally, we're we're just about to get to the shooting and, and the end of this, this segment, but the studio is getting a little bit antsy. Fox Studio is getting a little bit antsy over the escalating budget. It's getting bigger and bigger. So they cut the shooting schedule from 55 days to 45 days. Rough. Which is, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty rough. Yeah. No, that sucks. So they're forced to cut the, the budget from every department, but the only departments that they don't cut the budget from is the makeup and the wardrobe. Okay, yeah. You know, fair so, enough. That's... That's gonna come. Those are the things that you really, you know, can't cut back on. In this film, especially, like they could not afford to cut a cent from that makeup budget. No, definitely. Like I think if the makeup was much worse, that would have made the movie much worse. It would have ruined the film. Yeah, they couldn't. They really. They were. They couldn't have afforded it to be any worse than that. Yeah, I think. Have um, you ever played SimCity 2000? Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm just picturing, you know, like the transit authority guy. He's like, "You can't cut back on funding. You will regret this." <laughs> <laughs> I'm just picturing that. It's like, "You can't cut back on makeup money. You will regret you, this. You will regret it." And they definitely <laughs> would have. <laughs> yeah. So ultimately, they agreed on a budget of five point eight million dollars, and the project was allowed to start on time. And the extensive filming process and all that fun, fun stuff we will talk about next week. However, this week, before we go, we've got one more segment for you. One more fantastic related segment. 
What segment would that be? You tell me. Oh, I don't know, man. Uh, is there a segment <laughs> we're supposed to do? Clearly, I wasn't. Uh, I wasn't aware of it. You know, uh, maybe. Welcome to Six Degrees of Star Trek. Uh, this is everybody's favorite segment. We discover the connections between this film and Star Trek. Fuck yeah. It can be any kind of on-screen uh, Star Trek appearance. And uh, yeah, I think you get the picture if you've ever listened to this podcast before. But if you haven't, that's okay too. <laughs> exactly. And we, we love first-time listeners. So you said you, you saw a couple just right off the bat. I did. The, the, the first one I'm thinking of, I, I think we've actually talked about before. Yeah. And that is, is Jerry Goldsmith. Yes. Jerry Goldsmith has, in fact, scored five Star Trek films, <laughs> as well as several uh, series intros, I believe. Hmm. He did the theme for Voyager. Beautiful. Genius. Yes, he did Voyager. Uh, and he did some music for... Uh, just want to see uh, if he did The Next Generation as well. Yeah, so he did the music for Star Trek The Motion Picture, which was also used as the, music, the intro for Star Trek The Next Generation. Yeah. And he's most well known for, as we mentioned, for the Mummy. <laughs> he didn't even 19... do all the music for the Mummy. <laughs> no, but he's most well known for what he contributed to 1999. Yeah, right. I'm the surprised mummy. you, 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 being the Voyager fan that you are, would say that. That he's most well known for the Mummy. I know it's weird. It is weird because like, one would assume yeah. that he would be most well known for his Voyager work because that's his best work, but. But yeah. always the way it is. You know how uh, you know how it worked out for Van Gogh. <laughs> so um, anyway, so Jerry Goldsmith, uh, that is a one degree direct connection. Direct. It's as direct as it gets, or is it? <laughs> Does it get more direct than that? So I have three direct connections that have nothing to do with Jerry Goldsmith. Interesting. Three direct connections. Okay, that have nothing to do with Jerry Goldsmith. Fuck yeah. yes. Okay, lay them on me. Okay, so how do you think these work out? Do you, do you think that these, which series do you think these connect to mostly? It has to be TOS, one would assume. I guess not. I guess it could easily connect to any of the other ones, but one would assume because TOS was the only one going on at the time, and then there was like, you know, a long uh, dry period. So I'm going with TOS mostly. Okay, so... We do have a connection to TOS. A, okay. And the others? And so that is by uh, James Daly, who plays uh, in this film Honorius, who I believe is the prosecutor in the trial. It's hard to get the actors who plays who straight, because they're all apes. They're all in A makeup. But 
uh, I don't know if you scrolled through the IMDb page for this, but literally the picture they have for James Daly is him in TOS. <laughs> I did not see that. No, what is it? <laughs> like, it, it, you actually see the back of Shatner's head. <laughs> oh, that's in the, in the image. In this profile picture. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so he, in the episode, which is Requiem for Methuselah, oh, which yeah. is a classic episode, um, which is Indeed. about this this guy who, like, you know, lives for thousands of years and happens to basically be have an impact on Earth history and somehow is also yeah. Mozart and Bach at the same time. It's, yeah. Watch the episode. Watch the episode. And there's androids and stuff, too. It's a good episode. episode. It's got a lot of Star Trek. Uh, it's a peaks. very classic Star Trek episode. It's, yeah. I mean... Let me let me take this opportunity to talk about how like Planet of the Apes could very much be an episode of TOS, which could very much be an episode of the Twilight Zone. Yeah, so like the Twilight Zone, TOS, and Planet of the Apes are all like super uh, uh, thematically related. Thematically related. I actually think like um, Rod Serling had a few words to say about TOS. Yeah, did he say they ripped him off? No, like, I think he really enjoyed it. Like, um, but basically that, like, you know, uh, that that Roddenberry got to get away with a lot of the things he was saying about, like, all the uh, allegories that he was using because it was, like, sci-fi. Ah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yeah, he's right. <laughs> uh, it's like, so the censors didn't really notice it, I guess. Yeah, I guess it's like, so oh, it's just a dumb sci-fi show, right? They didn't think about it as much, yeah. Yeah, but uh no. There's But steep. no, it's it's in there. Yeah. Okay. So next we have Lucius in Planet of the Apes. Oh, the nephew, yeah, that's right. Played by Lou Wagner. He was the other one I noticed. Yes. So he has been in some trek. Specifically but Which Trek? Uh, he was in uh, the episode of Next Generation, Chain of Command, as Damon Solok. Oh yeah, I remember that. Uh, so th- this is the episode with Ronnie Cox, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And he's also been in Deep Space Nine in the episode of The Nagus as Cracks. Oh, that's we've talked about that episode before, haven't we? Have we? Oh, episode with Wallace Shawn in it? Yeah. <laughs> another classic episode. Uh, so yeah, that's another one. Great, Lou Wagner, right there. Lucius. And then we also have uh Paul Lambert, um, who is listed as playing Minister. I guess he was one of the apes. He was the minister, the guy who uh Charlton Heston when he crashes that the church, remember in the kids. Oh, oh the minister, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, that guy. He's that I guy. Mean, he look they all look like Dr. Zayas. They all look exactly like Dr. Zayas. He's been in two episodes of Star Trek Next Generation. Uh Which one two? in nineteen eighty eight. In when the bow breaks, uh, I remember. I, I remember that title. Let me see. Uh, it's an earlier '88. So yeah. Okay, this episode is clearly not very memorable for me. <laughs> Which one is it? Okay, so a planet was that was able to cloak itself for thousands of years suddenly reveals itself with its inhabitants proposing peace. But after initial negotiations, children of the Enterprise are kidnapped due to the I remember that of one. their inhabitants. I totally remember yeah. that one. Yeah. And Wesley is like, you know. Yeah, he's hanging out with the kids. Yeah, and he's got to like lead the children to safety or whatever. Yeah. 
but that he doesn't because he's Wesley. Yeah, obviously. Um, but yeah, no, like totally, totally kind of blanking on that episode for some reason. It's just not very memorable in my mind. The Weird. next episode that he was in was much more memorable to me. Who? Wait, who did he play in that last episode? Oh, in uh, in when the bow breaks. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't mention that. He plays uh, Melian. Yeah, so I guess he must play one of the aliens. Yeah, yeah. Presumably, uh, since he doesn't have a title or rank. Right. You can always tell when it's like when they're a Federation person if they're like doctor or like lieutenant or, or like ensign or, yeah. or like yeah, you know. Yeah. Uh, what was I gonna say? But yeah, his next appearance on Star Trek was much more memorable to me. It's a 1991 was... episode called Devil's Do. Which one's that? Well, this is about this is a season four episode where uh, there's this alien that uh, sort of poses as the like as a demonic figure on this planet and makes like a bargain with uh oh, with the yeah, planet kind of um what was the uh alien's name is uh Ardra yes that's the character yeah uh no that's not who he plays but that's the demon character is Ardra oh okay he plays uh Dr Howard Clark presumably a uh a, a federation yes um, uh, but yeah, no, like, um, tons of times in Star Trek, like, you will notice the same actor just playing a different character, especially if they were in makeup at one point. Yeah, yeah, especially if they were an alien. <laughs> like, actually, this is a really common thing with, even between the Star Trek series is, you will see, like, a guy be in Deep Space Nine as one thing, and then Voyager or something else. Actually, literally, we just had a guy who was in. Yeah, yeah, exactly, in both. Salt yeah. of the Earth. Yeah, and, like, in sci-fi in general, also, this is, like, really common. Like, uh, I, I recently watched a bunch of Stargate Atlantis, and it was funny seeing all the guys, all the random actors who were in SG-1 reappear as completely <laughs> different characters in Atlantis, and it was hilarious. But, um, yeah, Doesn't super common. Me. Also, in Star Trek, like, uh, people, these people, these same actors will appear in Star Trek or whatever, or the X-Files, or, like, you know? That's the whole point of this segment, essentially. Is like, yeah, that all these people are everywhere. Exactly. Yeah, that was four direct connections I found right there. Sick. And we could go you on, know, I think. We, probably, yeah. But that's maybe not direct, but you know. But this episode's getting a bit long. Yeah. So, uh, so I guess let that's... me. That is that. Um, well, it's not that because there's another episode next week. Yeah, we'll we will be back next week with much more. Because there's a lot more. <laughs> oh, yeah, there's a lot to say about We're this movie. We're barely fucking scraping the surface here. Yeah. But, okay. yeah. Well, we will, uh, we'll be back next week with a lot more fun stuff. So, see you then. Thank you all for listening. Yeah. Good night. Yeah.